Good afternoon. Uh, I'm John Podesta. I'm the president of the Center for American Progress, and welcome here. Uh, this is a very exciting event for us uh, because one of our scholars, uh, along with her colleague, has written really, I think, a fabulous book. My most important job is to hold it up and tell you to buy it at the back of the at the back of the room where it is, uh, in 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 fact, for sale. But. Uh, uh, Nina Shigian and uh, Mona Sutphin, uh, as I said, have written what I think is really an important book. Uh, for the last seven years, uh, we've seen the, uh, the application of centrifugal force applied to U.S. national security po policy. How can we kind of explode the world uh, and get everything sort of re revolving uh, uh, in, a, in an outward spiral? I think. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion in this uh, campaign season about a new approach, a different direction, something I think the American public is hungry for, something I think as I travel around the world, uh, indeed the world is hungry for, of how can we bring the world back together? How can we think about uh, the rising powers, uh, particularly China and India, uh, and, and, the, and our other uh, traditional powers, uh, Europe, Japan, Russia, uh, and others, how can we think about them uh, in a way that aligns national security policy in a in a place that again is is uh, uh, accommodating the rise of those powers, but uh, doing the work that we need to do to uh, secure our nation and and create a more peaceful world. And I think that there, while there's been uh, a lot of uh, theoretical work done, I think uh, what uh, Nina and Mona have done uh, has to take those theoretical approaches and actually apply them in a very practical way across a, a set of problems to show uh, that in, in, indeed we can create a, uh, a world order, if you will, uh, that is going to, that can uh, have the, the United States thrive again in, in this new century, but also again uh, bring kind of peace and stability uh, through the uh, application of, of all uh, of the U.S.'s powers. Uh, to lead them in a discussion of this book, um, I am joined, I should say, by the way, I, I, I said at the outset uh, that uh, Nina is, uh, is, a, is a CAP fellow and runs our uh, Los Angeles office. Uh, Mona and Nina and I are all colleagues from our days in the, in the Clinton White House where they served uh, on the National Security Council staff. Uh, but uh, to, to lead them uh, in discussion and to moderate a real conversation, uh, we're really uh, pleased to have with us uh, David Sanger, who is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, is one of the newspaper senior writers. Almost everyone, I'm sure, in the room uh, knows and reads David. He's really uh, been uh, a great asset uh, to the newspaper world, as, as you see various politicians complaining about uh, uh, about reporters. I think they rarely complain about David because he uh, he has been such a a person of in-depth reporting and, and, and terrific reporting covering foreign affairs, economic policies, and their intersection uh, for a, a long period of time. Uh, he has uh, been uh, a, a member of Times reporting teams that have won the Pulitzer Prize before covering the White House. Uh, Mr. Sanger specialized in the confluence of economic and foreign policies, written extensively on how issues of national wealth and competitiveness have come to redefine the relationships between the United States and its major allies. David's received many awards, including the DuPont Award for, from the Columbian Journalism School, the Weintal Prize for his coverage of the Iraq and Korea crises, and the Aldo Beckman uh, Prize for the coverage of the presidency. 
He's also shared the American Society of Newspaper Editors top award for deadline writing in 2004 for his coverage of the Columbia disaster. Uh, he is now currently, uh, I guess on leave from the New York Times, uh, writing an, an, uh, a new book, another book. Uh, he's part of the growing empire at the uh, Center for New American Security, our, our colleagues uh, and uh, think tank run by Kirk Campbell and, and Michelle Flournoy. Uh, and uh, uh, it, where he sits as a resident scholar while he's writing the book. Uh, so uh, he, I think, has his own thoughts on the issues that are described in this book, but I will turn things over to David to lead us into the discussion. And thank you all for being here today. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for uh, having all of us here today. And um, I want it on record that while some complain and some don't complain about our coverage, John would only complain occasionally when he was at the, the Clinton White House. But you usually knew it when he was unhappy. You know? um, this is a one remarkable book that uh, Nina and Mona have, uh, have written. And uh, I think that it uh, is most interesting when it addresses what I think is clearly going to be the sort of uh, uh, major trade-off that the next American president is going to have to deal with. And that trade-off is, on the one hand, managing the rising powers of China and India, which require uh, a whole set of skills, um, some of which have, uh, have been practiced and some not practiced in the past seven years in the, in the Bush administration. And then, of course, dealing with a world of collapsing states of non-state actors, uh, which, and of course a world of terrorism, which requires an incredibly different set of skills. And I think one of the things that Nina and Mona uh, bring to this, is, as John suggested, is a, a very sort of pragmatic, non-ideological kind of approach within the book anyway about how one goes about doing this and doing some of the work we need to do at home as well. So I thought that uh, the best way to start would be to have um, each of them uh, talk. I think Nina is going to uh, to begin, uh, and then Mona, and then I'll ask a question or two just to get the ball rolling, and we will turn it to all of you. So Nina, do you want to start off? Thank you. Thank you, David, and thank you, John, for that introduction. Thank you all for being here. Um, we're actually going to trade off a little bit, just okay. to, um, which is sort of how we wrote the book as well. Um, so American foreign policy, as you all know, has been pretty preoccupied with the Middle East for the last uh, six, seven years. And during that time, the big power landscape has, has shifted uh, quite dramatically. And we now, for the first time in memory, have several large assertive nations uh, coming on to the, to the world stage. And with that change has come quite a bit of anxiety here and in, in America. A friend once told me that um, all book writing begins with a central question, and that was true for us. Um, and our question was this, that we really wanted to answer for ourselves. How will the rise of China, as well as India, Russia, Japan, and the European Union, we call them together the pivotal powers, uh, how will that affect the future of the United States? Will our children um, be safer or less safe with a strong India and China on the scene? Um, will, will they be healthier or less healthy? Will they be better off than we've been or, or less comfortable? So we did our analysis, we tried to anyway, with a very open mind about the answers to these questions. And we expected that we would find that um, the existence of these big powers, while a fact, was actually a, quite a mixed bag for, for America. Um, so the conclusion we reached um, surprised us. Um, 
it runs counter to the assumptions that, that many of us have about, about, big, um, about big powers. And our conclusion is that on balance, the rise of China, India, Russia, as well as Japan and the European Union actually presents opportunities for America, opportunities to be safer and more prosperous. The pivotal powers basically want what we want. They want an orderly world based on trade uh, and peace. And they are on our team in many ways against the common threats that we all face, and we'll talk about some of those, and that we ought to really be thinking about leveraging their power rather than fearing their power. And if we focus on getting our own act together here at home, we're gonna, we, we really can thrive in, in a new age. Um, so as I said, this conclusion sort of upends up much of the typical zero-sum thinking that we do about the rise of, of other strong countries. Um, we've often, more often than not, been very suspicious about them. It was, you know, only 20 years ago that, that the Soviet Union was still our enemy. Then Japan came onto the scene, and with it, lots of anxiety about their economic power, even though they're a democracy and an ally. Um, then they both imploded, and it was replaced by fears about a united Europe or Germany, um, and those have gone away, and now um, it's China, India, and Russia that, that concern us. So um, today it would be good to kind of walk through and describe how we reach this optimistic view, kind of walking through our thinking. Um, and you know, first we step back and we, we reached a, a pretty central conclusion, which is that although um, conflict between the pivotal powers and the United States is possible, it's not inevitable. It's not inevitable that we will have a clash, although some people have argued that it, that it would be. Um, but even more fundamentally, um, you know, technology and globalization have really changed the way states interact with each other, just like they've changed everything else about the way we lead our lives. Um, and you know, first, obviously, we're in a nuclear era. And so the consequences of a direct clash between the major powers, um, the results of that are, are kind of unthinkable on a, on a certain level. Um, second, and this is a unique change, this is a change in, in, compared to the past, territory um, doesn't necessarily, necessarily make a power more secure or more prosperous. Right? Commodity markets allow you to access all the goods and services that you might want in another country. And the desire to access those resources was a, was a key reason for, foreign, for uh, major power conflict in the past. Um, third, there's really economic interdependence at a level that we have not seen in the past. A lot of people point to the period before World War I as a, as a model of you know, global integration, and then, of course, the world plunged into war. But today, this is not about trade. We actually literally own pieces of each other's economies. Um, you know, if you live in Alabama, you know this because Toyota's got plants there with thousands of American workers. It makes conflict, the risk of conflict, all the more palpable. Um, and then finally, um, we have, for the first time, genuine security interdependence. This is generally, genuinely new in the, in the international scene. And that means, for, for really the first time, in order for Americans to be safe in America, for our country to protect American citizens, we actually need the help of other nations. And that really is a distinctive uh, change from the past. Um, so once we realized that a direct clash with the other major powers is inevitable, then we thought, well, but there's got to be some downside to their rise, right? So we looked systematically about at how the powers might affect America's security um, in other ways, our prosperity, and then, of course, our values and how we, how we lead it, live our lives in this country. We made for ourselves sort of a hierarchy of threats, uh, starting with the ones that could kill hundreds of thousands of Americans in America today. 
And the good news is there's only two things that can do that, uh, two outside agents, uh, terrorists um, with a nuclear device and pandemic disease. Um, so when it comes to tackling terrorists, we are highly reliant on other countries um, to help us, uh, and they on us. Some Americans, I think, already probably owe their lives to the good work of MI5 and Scotland Yard and Britain um, in thwarting transatlantic uh, terror attacks. China is a member of the Container Security Initiative and allows our inspectors in their ports to help screen uh, shipping containers before they reach uh, our shores, and there's three million of those each year. Um, and, a, and a great example is India. India has been tracking Islamic, radical Islamic extremist groups for decades. We didn't used to care so much about that, but now they are not so uh, you know, interested in Kashmir any longer. They're interested in us. And in fact, some members of the LET, which has is, which is, uh, conducted um, attacks in India, um, were some, some uh, Americans who trained with the LET were arrested in Virginia just uh, four years ago. So we really uh, need India's expertise. And even Russia is co-chairing with us a group of 50 nations trying to keep nuclear materials out of the hands of terrorists. Russia is also the place where there are, you know, hundreds, thousands actually of warheads lying around not properly guarded. So if we want to keep Americans safe from, um, from a catastrophic attack, we need to work with, with these other countries. Um, and in terms of disease, um, we are also reliant on China and the other big powers to contain um, outbreaks before they reach our shores. SARS, you may recall, it spread to six countries in a matter of hours and then 30 countries in a matter of months. Um, so when it comes to disease, we should really want you know, rich powers with great uh, public health infrastructure. And even on the less immediately threatening um, security issues like Iran and North Korea, like it or not, we need to actually work with the powers in order to, to get results. Um, there's no lasting solution on North Korea that will be possible with China's, without China's active um, engagement. And you know, fortunately, they have been deeply engaged. And similarly, any response on Iran needs to have everybody on board if it's going to, if it's going to actually work. Um, and on the climate crisis, the US and the pivotal powers, we are all the problem, maybe with the exception of Japan, um, but also the solution. We actually all basically need to be more like Japan. Japan can be our, our leader in this instance as they are so, um, so efficient. Um, so India and China, yes, they are polluting like crazy, but until we transition to a low carbon economy, we give them a total free pass. So in this case, it's really American leadership that's missing. Um, but you know, there, we did see some tangible downsides to the, to the rise of these powers, so we don't, you know, but it, really they were on the more amorphous threats, um, on places where we might be working against each other in terms of an ally of ours or on a, some place, some third country area, um, and potentially threats to American prestige and certainly our freedom of action. We've seen this, you know, the Europeans have been constraining in, in American diplomacy on a number of fronts in recent years. And in terms of Taiwan contingencies, you know, China would make our lives actually quite difficult. Um, so there's no question that the existence of stronger powers will make our diplomacy a lot more complicated, um, more difficult to navigate. Um, but we also have to remember that we've, you know, done a lot of self-inflicted wounding over the last seven years. And one could easily argue that the, the damage that we've done to ourselves hugely outweighs the downsides related to these powers and how we've intersected on policy issues. Um, and so it just seemed illogical to us, you know, to focus on the potential threat way down the, the field of a China or an India or a Russia 
when in fact there are people who are trying to kill Americans today. I mean, there are people obviously out there, Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups that would love to kill Americans. Um, and what we found heartening thus far is that many Americans actually get this instinctively. We were doing, we've been doing radio associated with this book. And, um, you know, a week and a half ago, we were doing an interview with a Christian radio station in Florida. And, you know, when we were talking about these, this question about China and why we shouldn't automatically assume that China is going to be the next big enemy of the United States, my, the interviewer said, oh, yeah, I completely get that. It's like focusing on, you know, your beginnings of rheumatoid arthritis when, in fact, you're ble bleeding profusely from your arm and your leg. Um, we do need to triage these threats. And if you do that triage, you come to the conclusion that we should really be focusing on the, on the threats that can kill us today. Um, so let's yeah. turn to American prosperity now and how the rise of big powers affects that. Overall, the economic growth of these powers actually supports the American economy, if you look at the big picture overall. Um, in recent years, the, the economies of China and India and Russia have grown dramatically. Our trade with them has grown dramatically, but our economy has also grown, except uh, until recently. Um, they are big export markets for us. Um, the U.S. exports to China from 2000 to 2005 grew 158% compared to 12% for the rest of the world. And I was actually just reading the other day that Ford sales are actually growing somewhere, and that's in China. Um, they are sources of capital for us, and the cheap manufacturing in China in particular has extended the paychecks of a lot of Americans. I recently um, bought a, a parka for my son, which was remarkably $12. I was um, shocked. Um, now, I say that the overall economy has grown because of trade with them, and, and that's the case, but we also know that um, uh, the incomes of poor and middle-class Americans have not grown. They have, they have stagnated. So there are a lot of reasons for that, but the bottom line is that it's our problem to, to divide our pie evenly, or fairly, I should say, at home. Um, our pie is getting bigger because of trade with them, but it's our job, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, to, uh, to make sure that those benefits are, be are being shared across society. Right. So, um, I mean, there are a lot of downsides to, you know, in terms of the, the impact disruptions for American workers associated with globalization. And we see that, obviously, in certain industries that are particularly sensitive to um, competition from the, you know, rising China and ma Chinese manufacturing and, and even India. Um, and we he heard a lot of these concerns that you're talking about oil competition, there's the trade deficit, there's capital flight. Um, and we can't go into all of them today. They, we, uh, go through a lot of these in the book. Um, but today we'll focus on two. One is off offshoring, so sending jobs over to foreign markets, and innovation. Um, and on the outsourcing part, um, you know, obviously there are jobs going to China and India that otherwise were in the United States. Um, but it turns out it's a really small number of jobs. Um, only about 2% of the jobs lost each year actually are going elsewhere, abroad. Most jobs in America disappear because of technology changes. Right? Um, and so, you know, as we get for the last, you know, 100 years, we lose jobs, we gain jobs, it goes back and forth, and we have no reason to consider that that won't, assume that that won't continue. And in fact, um, you know, for every hour that an American business, American business is open, we create and destroy 25,000 jobs, right? So there's a lot of job churn because our economy is incredibly dynamic. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't downsides to workers. Um, and some workers will lose their jobs. Some workers will get a new job, but nowhere near the pay and benefits that they had in their old jo job. And you know, we 
believe very strongly, and we argue in the book, that we need to help Americans cope with the destructive changes that globalization brings about. This is a, it's an urgent challenge for us. One, it's politically smart to do. Two, it's the right thing to do, because we want Americans to have good jobs and feel stable and understand that competition, they're going to have to embrace competition in this changing world. Um, and this is where creative public policy comes into play. Um, we talk about a, a variety of policy solutions in the book, um, but a bunch could help. One would be, for example, wage insurance, which would allow workers um, to make up the difference in terms of their salary if they get a new job um, so that they can guarantee a certain floor of income. Another would be um, you know, a universal 401k, so there's some more, more retirement security than we've seen. And a third, of course, is also dealing with our health care costs and universal health care, um, which would both incentivize companies to keep jobs in the United States to the extent they're moving them because of, of high health care costs, and allow workers to go off and start new entrepreneurial ventures, which is really a driver of our economy. Um, so finally, on, on economics, we're, we'll just talk briefly about innovation. Um, a lot of people concerned, are concerned that more and more innovation is going to take place overseas, and that's the case, that's, but that's not necessarily bad for the United States. Um, while individual companies might lose out on profits, o Americans as a whole are going to benefit. If an Indian pharmaceutical company, for example, uh, invents a cure for Alzheimer's, you know, great for them, you know, good for them, and, and it's great for us as well. But the key is that America has to continue to innovate as well, and which means we have to do a much better job of growing our own scientists uh, here. There was a recent uh, study that showed that Amer American teenagers are in this dubious category of actually being more confident in their science abilities than their counterparts around the world, but actually less skilled than average. Uh, <laughs> classic. Um, and, and the United States actually ranks in the bottom half of 57 countries that are surveyed, including all the industrialized democracies. It's really, it's, it's, a sh it's a pathetic. Um, and we've been importing foreign PhDs to sort of make up the difference, but our immigration policies have gotten tougher and, and research constraints have gotten tougher just as these countries are becoming much more attractive uh, places to be and are offering lots of incentives to scientists. At the end of the day, we can't have a policy based on the hope that poor countries are going to stay poor. It's not morally right and it's not practical. Right. And so, um, you know, the one of the other questions we got a lot is, but, you know, China and, and Russia, they're not democracies. And so, you know, that must mean that we're headed for a clash with them. Um, and, but when we stepped back and we looked at it, unlike terrorists, which actually have caused us to change our value system here at home, if you look at rollbacks of civil liberties and the like, um, in fact, the big powers really don't, don't do that. And yes, of course, they're not liberal democracies that we might like, but neither are they trying to push their form of government elsewhere in the world. They've actually bought into the idea of, of capitalism and they want st global stability just like everybody else because you know we won this battle of ideas. So we really are in a different place than we were at the end of the Cold War. And we need to acknowledge that. Um, and you know, a related issue comes back to human rights. I mean, very clearly, we don't like the way Russians treat their citizens or Chinese treat their citizens. In Russia, we've got a you know they had a fragile democracy. It's being rolled back you know every second. In China, we all know they have a zero tolerance for dissent of pretty much any kind. And we don't like it, and that's understandable, and we should talk about it, and talk about it honestly, and share our views on that, on that subject. But we also have to acknowledge that as they become more powerful, they are less interested, and they, we have less leverage to change the way they behave at to their citizens at home. Um, you know, if you hear, 
you know, if we heard the Russians complaining about the U.S. of the use of the death penalty in the United States, most Americans would say, well, who cares what you think? And increasingly, the Russians and the Chinese are strong enough to say, you know what, we don't really care what you have to tell us about our human rights situation. And that is one sad fact about the, 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 our rise. Um, but on the other hand, you know, part of the reason that the world has followed us is because we were a beacon of our own values and we really lived by our values. And that made people very hopeful and want to emulate us. And so to the extent that we should be doing something, it's actually to get back to uh, the kind of model that we all wish we were living by and that we think would do a lot more to further our values abroad than anything else that we might do in terms of beating up the Chinese and the Russians. Um, so. Um, in terms of the summary, summation of where we came out, um, you know, we saw that you know the rising, the pivotal powers are really partners with us on the common threats and the common challenges that we all face. That they really do share the common concerns and common outlook. And so we ought to focus on these areas of commonality rather than just presuming that we're automatically going to be um, uh, enemies. Um, and then we went from there in the book to a to a chapter, and we really examined. Um, what these pivotal powers think of us and their own place in the world and whether or not they want to usurp America's role. And, you know, I'm going to sum up the views of three billion people now, so I'm going to do that with some <laughs> trepidation. But um, <laughs> it turns out that when we, inter we did interviews across all of the pivotal powers, and they basically, of course, are annoyed that the United States flaunts, you know, just ignores all of the global rules and we do whatever we want to do. But the good news is that they really do want to be part of the global order, world order, more or less. Um, they, of course, want more of a voice in how that order is shaped. But that does create an opportunity for us to shape and lead and re reinvigorate what, is, what has helped us um, get to where we are. So taking um, all these sort of conclusions into account, we came up with uh, a strategy that we think America should employ toward the, toward the pivotal powers. And we called it um, strategic collaboration. And I'm just going to go through it really quickly. You can ask more questions or, or read about it in the book. Um, the first step is to invest in U.S. long-term strength at home. And we've discussed some of that already. Um, and the second is to construct stable, positive, um, not necessarily friendly, but constructive uh, relationships with each of these um, big powers. And in the third step, we recommend that the next president bring all these big powers around one table and focus them on um, our common challenges. And surprisingly, there is no forum where, where this can be done today, no forum where these, these, the six of us can discuss um, issues in a, in a small group. Um, and we, you know, we talk, we, we sort of outline our idea in the book, and uh, again, you can ask or read about it. Um, but the bottom line is that with two-thirds of the um, economic output of the world and, and half the population of the world between uh, the six of us, we can make progress on anything if we're on the same page, whether it be you know, renewing, renewing the nuclear nonproliferation treaty or uh, tackling climate change or AIDS or you know, whatever it may be. Um, and then in terms of the, um, the last step of our strategy is, is hedging, right? Because Today, it's true, there is no power that could really challenge the United States militarily, um, nor does any of them have the intent to do so. But that doesn't mean that we can predict what will happen in the future. And so that means really a couple of steps, which we won't go into everything in the book, but, um, but one of them is to really understand much better what is going on in these powers, um, uh, a better understanding of who they are, what they want, what their trajectories are, and then also investing in a cutting edge forward deployed military that really is looking at over the horizon technologies that we can be prepared for a range of scenarios. Um, 
And you know, we, part of the reason we wrote this book is that we really do believe that the time is now for us to Im implement um, this uh, strategy of, of collaboration that we've outlined in the book. And that's because right now, the US still has disproportionate power in the world system. Right? We have a situation where the world, the biggest pivotal powers, want to be part of the world order. And um, there is room right now to kind of leverage their power and channel it into a productive direction. And so we need to take advantage of this opportunity right now. And obviously, we're in the middle of an election season. So there's a wonderful moment to change, to pivot, and, and change, and engage in a different way. Um, but to implement the strategy is going to take a new kind of American leadership. We need to uh, encourage these powers to play and to pay as well for a seat at the table with us. We can't dictate the answers, but we really can't disengage either. We need um, both American leadership and pivotal power engagement to actually uh, you know, tackle our, our biggest problems. We have to leave the divisive doctrine of primacy at the door or behind the doors, I should say, when, when we have to leave this, we have to leave this destructive doctrine behind when the doors close on, on this administration. Um, tying our foreign policy to the idea that the U.S. has to be stronger than all these pivotal powers by a fixed, enormous margin has not actually made us any safer. It hasn't stabilized Afghanistan. It hasn't brought democracy to Iraq. It hasn't found, it hasn't, um, eliminated al-Qaeda, it hasn't denuclearized North Korea. So we really need um, a different approach and uh, we really need the help of other countries to get these important things done. And insistence on primacy makes that much harder. So to our surprise, I think this is one of the things that surprised me most in writing the book, Americans actually seem uh, very ready for this change. We looked at all kinds of polling from various sources over the last decades and um, Americans are actually very willing to work with other countries. They actually prefer that, even when the costs of doing that are highlighted. Um, so, for example, in a 2006 poll, it was 75% of Americans said that the U.S. should do its share to solve world problems along with other countries. And they rejected the view that we should do it alone, and they rejected the view that we shouldn't, do, that we shouldn't try to tackle problems. Um, Americans really want to join the world. They don't want to rule it. Yeah, so the big question then was, well, what are the impediments then to implementing this strategy? And we came up with two. Um, and uh, it's really our political system, of course, and um, the media, which fuels kind of a lot of things. And it's the former because it's a really easy to scapegoat, right, the foreign power. It's easier to castigate China than to really on its trade-related trade issues rather than focus at home at the difficult reality, which is that Americans are addicted to credit and we have a serious problem with, you know, in terms of our budget and our appetite for spending. Um, and on the media, you know, the media loves a good fight, <laughs> right? Fear, drama, they're perfect, you know, they're on TV every night on reality TV and, you know, the news creates great fodder for that same coverage. Um, and so, you know, we have in the book a, a series of ideas for overcoming, pragmatic ideas for overcoming those obstacles. Um, and so uh, we really hope that you'll read the book, buy the book, read the book, and um, we can describe those. Or you can ask us in the Q and A section of this. Um, and so you know, we concluded really with a very optimistic message about America. Um, that and it was very pragmatic as well, which is that we really need to take advantage of this opportunity now to leverage the, the strength of these powers um, rather than fear the strength of these powers. Um, we need to lead them and not try to dictate to them. Um, because they do want to, they do want to engage with us, and they're willing to work together with us as long as we don't hector them and dictate to them. 
And then finally, that we need to invest in our own country. And if we do that, we, we, could, we have some control over the fate of our own country on these shores. So rather than focusing unnecessarily on the rise of other countries, we ought to focus mostly on the country whose fate we do control. And um, that's basically a summary of the book. Well, thank you uh, both, and thank you for that um, <clears throat> wonderful and, and complete um, summary of it. Um, I'm going to play my um, assigned role in life, which is to play devil's advocate a little bit on some of these and try to probe particularly on two things that you both brought up, um, democracy and primacy, and get a discussion going there, and then we'll see what everybody else um, is interested in, in taking the conversation. Let me start with democracy. Um, at the end of the first Bush term, I remember uh, talking with Secretary Rice. She was just at her, the last time, that, uh, her last few weeks as National Security Advisor, and asking her what, I, what she thought would be lasting out of the legacy. And she made the argument that what they call the the freedom agenda or the democratization agenda would be lasting. And of course, the president's second inaugural address was all about devoting the United States to spreading freedom and ending tyranny around the world. As I went through your book and listened to your presentation, that is not part of your agenda. You have um, an agenda of finding common interests, but it strikes me that at moments with countries like China, which are seeking stabilization over democratic change, you're willing to go along with the stabilization agenda. Um, an example, they are willing to strike oil deals with the likes of Sudan or other countries that they think could be significant oil providers. And those countries would rather do business with them than with us because they know they're not going to get lectured about human rights or democratization. How could you advise a candidate for president this year, Democrat or Republican, to run on a platform of, let's forget about exporting democracy? I mean, the reality is democracy will always be part of our agenda. So I take issue a little bit with your question, which is it's not that democracy isn't on our agenda. It's effective promotion of democracy, we think, is the most important thing. And that starts number one. I mean, we, you have to step back and think, why is it that people are willing to listen to us? We got this a lot when we interviewed people from the, from the pivotal powers. And, you know, people said, told us, you know, it's not that we really want to listen to what America has to say. That's not actually why they follow us. They follow us because they think we have better ideas, right? Because the way we lead our country and the way this democracy thrives is stable. It has led us to incredible levels of prosperity and uh, continuing form of government without a lot of ups and downs. Um, and so we really lead best when we lead by example. And we really do the best when we collaborate with people to push an agenda that's already on the table. We do not do well when we try to foist, foist our ideas onto other people. And that, I think, has been one of the fundamental flaws in the Bush administration, is not understanding the difference between these two. And that's something that we need to get back to first and foremost, because we, you know, there's so much hypocrisy in the way we are promoting our democracy, right? You look at Iraq, which is just, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but Pakistan is a prime example 
right? So we have Afghanistan on the one hand, and of course we have to have the freedom agenda there. You go over, you know, 100 miles, and no, 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 but not here. So you can't, you know, you can't have it both ways. And these days with the media and access to the internet, I mean, people see that hypocrisy, right? So um, even on the oil issues and, um, you know, China's willingness to get involved with everybody from Mugabe to, you know, Sudan, um, you know, we engage with the Saudis to get access to oil, right? They are not the height of respect for human rights. Nobody really wants to talk about that. Um, the re and the reality is China wants to do oil deals with people. We can't really do all that much to stop it. Now, the one thing we can do is to, rather than letting them step into the vacuum that we've created by not engaging with the rest of the world, which is, which is true for the past seven years, of course, we've been consumed with the Middle East and have really left Sub-Saharan Africa alone, pretty much left Latin America alone, and even Asia really left Asia alone. And that's allowed China to kind of step into the breach. And so if we don't like the way things are headed, then that means we need to start engaging with the rest of the world. So, you know, that's that's. Can I just I add one thing to that? Which is that it's not just China that's doing deals with Sudan. It's also India. Um, and it's also, so it's not just you know, and China. The Europeans. Yeah. yeah, and the Europeans. It's not, it, it's because we have sanctions against, that's, you know, against Sudan. That's why our, our companies aren't there. Um, and we do recommend in the book that we work more closely with the EU and with India in particular and with Japan about bringing the idea of liberal democracy forth. They're actually probably better vectors for that now than we are. I mean, we are completely discredited on the freedom agenda at the moment because of what we've done in Iraq. And so we actually, you know, we have to work with the EU, which is not. And, and they want, you know, even more fervently than we do probably to bring liberal principles to other countries. And, and we do recommend in the book that we do that. And in terms of trying to influence the, the forms of government in China and Russia, it's just awfully hard to do. We just don't have a lot of leverage. And so we think that the best leverage we have, as Mona said, is to act as examples. Because China has looked at America as an example of modernity, you know, for the last decades. And if we can continue to be a good example, um, that's probably the most effective thing. Similarly, if we bring them into a club, a club that includes India and includes, includes the EU and includes Japan, um, we could well be trying to influence their future development. There's actually a lot of talk in China now among the leadership about democratization. They mean something completely different than what we mean by it, but they're talking about it and they're talking about pluralization. And the question is, how do you encourage that um, and I think the best way to do it is, as Mona said, by acting is. <laughs> <laughs> so the best way to, I think to do that is to include them um, in, in solutions to problems and give them uh, lots of examples of thriving countries that have different forms of government. Let me um, turn briefly to the primacy question. Um, Madeleine Albright used to refer to the United States when you folks were at the NSC as the indispensable nation. Uh, the Bush administration took that a step further and wrote into the 2002 national security strategy that we would never again allow a peer competitor to rise beyond the, the status of the United States. Um, you clearly call for an end to that kind of thinking. Is it your view right now that um, we could, well, first of all, again, that somebody could run for president saying publicly in either party we should allow challenges to our primacy as the as as the indispensable nation and then secondly as a matter of governing which is a different thing than a matter of getting elected do you see a risk 
in diluting our role as that indispensable nation. Um, let me start by saying that I think we are an indispensable nation, an indispensable nation. Um, and I think that without American leadership, a lot of problems are not going to get solved. That you, you do need the United States saying, here's where we need to focus, let's everybody do it. Because we're, we, we're good at playing that role. That's leadership. Uh, that's not primacy. And they're totally different. And I actually th think that that's also the answer to the election question. Because no, you can't say, um, you know, we should be weaker, or, you know, relatively weaker to these other countries. It is, you know, a fact as countries grow, if you look at the relative difference, it, you know, it, it goes like this. But, you know, we are up here, and they are down here, and we're worried about these tiny increments. And uh, the fact is that it's... Remember what happened in Michigan when one candidate in the Republican Party said, <laughs> these jobs are not coming back right. to Michigan, which right. seemed to many people to be a statement of fact given the kind of jobs they were. Um, and he promptly lost by, to somebody who said, we will bring these jobs back. The fact that it's American leadership that we have to focus on, and, and, and it's helping workers. So it's, it's not about, um, I think the answer to the jobs question is, we have to take care of workers here at home. That's our job to do. That is not China's job. It's not India's job. We need to help with the transition. Um, and I think the answer in terms of the primacy question is, is it's about American leadership. And it is about American leadership. It's not primacy. Primacy, is, it, in the, it, it, is, it suggests that no country can grow, essentially. At, at base, it's saying to other countries, we're not going to let you come anywhere close to us. And even if you grow a little bit, we're going to be concerned about it. And, and that's just not a message that's going to help us actually be safer in the long run. Is the primacy that the Bush administration had in mind one of economic growth? Because I think many in the Bush administration would argue that economic growth abroad helps us for all the reasons you lay out in the book. Or is it a question of building up a military power and a degree of diplomatic influence that could challenge the U.S.? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the latter more than the former, but the reality is, of course, once you have right. the former, chances are you probably are going to want the latter because, you know, people, again, are emulating the United States. If you're a great power, then, of course, you're going to want a you know, nice, shiny military, and you're going to want all the other things that go along with that, the clout in the world system um, that any power might want. And our point about primacy is that if we're saying, okay, nobody, no other country can have this, you're encouraging countries then to kind of pick us off. Right? To, to take on the king of the hill, as it were. If we're saying, you know what, you, this is a natural outgrowth of what, you, what your natural desires might be, and as long as it's channeled in a productive direction, we actually can use more stabilization. Right? We need more, more strength to deal with these, the forces of chaos, of destabilization that are going on. You know, as you were talking about, failed states, terrorism, all of these other things, we actually need their strength, right? So um, a lot of it has to do with, you know, whether or not you can ac accept the idea that another power might actually want to have a military. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to come after us with that military, right? And as long as we, we keep saying you can't have it, of course they're going to want to come after us. So that's kind of one piece of it. I um, mean, to go back to your jobs question, I think the issue that you know, the candidate, they both, in a sense, are, are right and wrong. Because it is true, of course, those, jo those particular jobs are not coming back oh, to Michigan. Yeah. But the point is, is that it is, in, in fact, 
a policy challenge to encourage, yes, other jobs, other good-paying jobs to come to states like Michigan. It shouldn't be, okay, well, you're out of luck, you know, hope you can get a job at Walmart, you know, to, with the, you know, stacking carts or whatever. We have to have public policy that does encourage innovation investment so that people will, will you know, put their jobs all across the country. I'll open this up, but I, I just want to make the, the point that what you have described, I think, was the Democratic Party's orthodoxy at the end of the Clinton administration. But I'm not sure the Democratic Party is still there right now. I mean, what we have seen <laughs> is a party, and the, all, almost all of the candidates uh, in that party have moved significantly off of where Bill Clinton, the, the yeah. argument you've laid out is very much the one that the president you worked for would right. have laid out. I'm not sure it's the one no. that the candidates who are running for the Democratic nomination, much less the Republican one, are, are making the case for at this point. Right. No, I've, and I think, you know, the reality, this, this election, I think you're going to see, because now the economy is the central focus, which I've thought for a long time. I thought it would be Iran for, <laughs> for a while, but then, of course, that kind of went away. So, <laughs> so it's, I think it's going to be the economy front and center. And I think that although you have candidates saying they're willing to be honest with Americans about what the future holds in this world of change, I think that it is not, it's an, a message any candidate has to build it is not a message that you can deliver easily in a soundbite. And I think the danger for any candidate, as the one in Michigan saw, is that you, you, it is something that you're going to have to bring the American population along to this view. It's not something that you can just lay out on the table and have people get. So it is dangerous. I think people are going to have to walk and it, it's from also that to say that it, we, we do have work to do. I mean, we, it's not that we can just sail along as we are and be fine in this new era. We have a lot of work to do. And, and and that's really where our focus ought to be. Um, so, it, so for example, on um, I was going to say, I mean, uh, and as Mona says, like trying to trying to you know focus on education so we can grow more uh, grow more scientists here at home, um, and and as well on on healthcare and the others that that that's that is sort of part of the answer to making our economy stronger for the future and doing a better job of promoting our exports abroad, which I don't think we do as effectively as we should. Well, let's open it up to all of you. I think there is a microphone that's going around. When uh, you get the microphone, and please wait till it arrives, please tell us who you are, and uh, we'll move from there. And please do make it a question, not a declaration. <laughs> Let me start with you, sir. Uh, thank you, Frank Fletcher. I'm an independent researcher on foreign policy. Um, my question uh, would be, um, Looking at the last um, decade and a half, or certainly since 1989 or 93 forward, a tremendous effort has been expended on promoting Israeli-Palestinian peace. And I think the Clinton administration made an effort that, you know, I don't want to offend other administrations, but I don't know anyone who did more than, than Bill Clinton. If you look at the amount of time and the effort put into that, how, what can be done in that in the future? Do you think other powers might be able to help more than they've ever been willing to help? And um, how pivotal is that to solving other problems in the Middle East? I mean, some people feel it's very connected. You must solve that first, as the Baker-Hamilton Commission implied. I don't think they said first, but, you know, that's very critical. And other people say, well, it's not actually connected to other problems. So. Um, 
I think that this administration really took its hands totally off the wheel on the peace process for the first, you know, six years um, of the administration. And the bottom line is, you, you, America has to play a role in making that happen, in, in bringing that peace. And uh, you know, we squandered the opportunity. I do think it's central to to um, greater stability in the region. But we have to be engaged. And actually, you know, the, I think the peace process is a really interesting thing because the, the downside of, of, of that taking your hands off the wheel is that it is so much more of a complicated uh, challenge that we now face um, because of the rise of Hezbollah in the intervening years, the rise of, you know, Hamas in the intervening years, um, now the linkages back to Iran and, you know, the Sunni-Shia split that gets discussed a lot. Um, we, whoever is, is, ends up being president, really has a serious, serious challenge on their hands. And, you know, a lot of people thought this about the Iraq War, that this would open a Pandora's box of all kinds of problems. The peace process is just one of them. I'm not even sure if you can call it a peace process, and I'm not even sure how you put what you do in terms of staging. It is going to take an enormous amount of time, um, of, the, of the United States' time, but yes, I do think there's a role. Already the quartet in Europe is playing a much more active role in the peace process than they ever had before, in part because the U.S. has really not been present. Um, and I think you know, the other powers will recognize that this is crucial to kind of global stability, particularly as energy prices, of course, continue to go kind of out of control. Um, I don't know that you're ever going to get you know, the Chinese at the table with you know, the Israelis or anything like that, but um, I think that you will be you will be able to go to these other pivotal powers and say, we need you to do X or Y in order to try to get this into a place where we can all live with the, con with the, with the outcome. So yes, I do think there's, there's more room. It is remarkable. We spent the last year of the Clinton administration uh, watching everybody try to race toward an agreement in the Middle East and North Korea. And we're watching the last year of the Bush <laughs> administration <laughs> in the exact same place. Right, right. <laughs> History Amazing. may not repeat itself, no, but, but it does rhyme a lot. <laughs> right. Yes, sir. First, I want to thank you for the rigorous and uh, pragmatic approach you've taken to the subject. It's very unusual and just delightful. I plan to buy and read your book thoroughly. I am worried about your point on prosperity based on uh, some articles from James Fallows who's moved from the uh, Atlantic Monthly headquarters to China. And he makes the point that we're only seeing the front end of uh, Chinese industrial effect on this country and that's in manufacturing. Your $12 parka, you could buy that out at uh, uh, Walmart, an American retailer, and it has an American label on it, an American company. With the cost structure of China now moving to the design, development, and testing of a product, and then the delivery and service of the product, and China graduating an order of magnitude, more engineers from top engineering schools, how can we look forward to prosperity? I know I'll find the answer in your book. Well, I'll give you a, f a few thoughts. Um, first, that we are an incredibly dynamic, innovative country, and we shouldn't sell ourselves short. Every time any organization uh, does an evaluation of all the countries in the world about you know, where's the best place to do business, who's the most innovative, we always come out on top. And so it's just a matter of, of getting through a transition. But you know, like Mona said, I mean, we create and destroy an enormous number of jobs every day. And you know, we started as an agrarian economy with 75% of our labor force you know, farming. And now something like 1% or 2% does that. So 
we've, we've weathered big transitions before. There's no reason to think that if we do our work at home, we can't continue to do that. Um, but you know that's a big if, and we do need we do need national health care so businesses don't keep um, putting those uh, you know those R and D f um, uh, centers in other places because the health care costs here are too high you know et cetera. The second thing is that we have a tendency I think to see China as this 900 pound gorilla you know or 800 pound gorilla with no uh, you know that's just going to keep steaming along at 10 percent a year you know year after year they have enormous problems and they have for one, a gigantic aging problem, a demographic problem like no one's ever seen before. Their population is, is aging incredibly rapidly due to the one-child policy. And um, you know, we have to hope that their economy keeps chugging along to some degree because our economy you know, uh, is, is um, dependent on that. But I, I just don't think we're going to see that the same level of growth continue for the next 40 years. That raises a, an interesting question you know, I wanted to ask you about. Are we more at risk now from a strong China or from a weak China? I mean, if you, if you yeah, consider the possibility that the Chinese have been running down this river for 20 years, astoundingly avoiding boulders at every step along the way, they're going to hit one sometime okay. in the next right. five, ten years. When they do, how prepared are we for the oh, yeah. effects of that? I mean, this is we, we <laughs> saw this in the book a lot. I mean, everybody's worried about the rise of China. We're worried about what happens if China implodes. I mean, just on their buying of our Treasury bonds alone, I mean, we, let's hope they can continue to, you know, write a check every month for, you know, to, to basically pay for us to continue to use our credit cards. Um, but the downside risks, I mean, we were just saying in the stock market earlier this year, you know, there was a kind of a blip on the radar in the Shanghai Stock Exchange, and our, our stock exchange in the next, next day plunged 300 points, right? So that just gives you a sense of what could happen down the road. And that's just on the economic front, like not to mention disease or terrorism. Exactly. I mean, imagine China as, you know, really truly implodes on some level and there's chaos. I mean, that, you know, imagine Al-Qaeda's field day with, you know, with Afghanistan except 4,000 times as big. Um, and, and disease. I mean, China is the, you know, sort of ground zero for avian flu. I mean, we have to hope that they're able to kind of keep track of it and keep sending the samples they're supposed to be sending, et cetera. Because again, just looking at the campaigns, which are a way to sort of measure in very rough form um, the agendas of those who would hope to take over the government. I have seen very, um, Republicans or Democrats, not a partisan comment, but just a reporter's observation. I have seen very little in the way of proposals about cooperative ventures with China on either side. If you had to name two or three that you think could get us started right away that the Chinese would actually go for, what would they be? I'd say I'll, I'll yeah. start. Um, a clean energy, I'd say, mm -hmm. is one. I mean, we both, we both are huge consumers of, um, of oil and gas. We both desperately need new forms of energy. They have a lot of scientists. We have a lot of scientists. It seems like a very natural way that we could partner on clean coal technology or um, you know, better wind, better solar, et cetera. We both desperately need to solve that problem, and you know, we could be doing it better together. Um, the other one is, is on pandemic disease. I think there could be a lot more collaboration among us. Um, now that um, Dr. Chan, a Chinese uh, woman doctor, is, is the head of the WHO, um, you know, this could, you know, it hasn't happened yet in the United States, but literally, and I'm sure you recall from SARS, I mean, the Chinese economy shut down literally at a huge, enormous cost to them. And it was a big wake-up call, I think, to them. 
Um, you recall everybody walking around with the face masks. I mean, that could happen in the United States, right? That easily, you know, because something happens and it's a couple of weeks before people realize that there's a problem and people have gotten on and off planes all over the world and we're all kind of struggling. So, um, you know, we really need a much better public in health infrastructure here, notification process, awareness process, um, but we also need to be more integrated um, in order to stave off uh, pandemic disease. So, And then just one last thing where we are cooperating is North Korea. And we have to continue to do that if we're actually going to Although that, that may be a case where we're looking for disarmament and they're looking for stability. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that, that, that that's our order of priority, but that's one and two for both of us. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, you know, the Chinese voted for tough UN sanctions against North Korea. They've mm -hmm. never done anything like that before. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I think they, they you know, they realized that the North Koreans, yeah, I think there was always an assumption on their part, right, that they could always make sure that the North Koreans would do what they wanted them to do, and then they tested, and I think they were probably a little surprised themselves, yeah. right, that maybe, okay, maybe these folks, we really can't con guarantee their behavior, right? So that was, I think, a wake-up call. It's a good one for us because it gives us, they, they realize, okay, you know what, maybe we do need to cooperate more to get this under control. Hand over here. My name is Ted Curran. I have a background in the Foreign Service and the private sector. Um, very uh, provocative book, very interesting. I've been thinking about, as you talk, though, uh, and you mention a couple of them, there's some disconnects between what you would like to have our country do and what we can do. And you mentioned the 535 secretaries of state, I think, and the, uh, also the uh, news entertainment factor. Uh, there are a couple of other factors I've been concerned with over the years. One is the <coughs> hugely increased influence of money in politics, people contributing to campaigns at unparalleled levels. And whereas as a First Amendment matter, we can't talk about that, but the, one of the impacts is that the career services, particularly the State Department Foreign Services in, and the senior jobs, are increasingly going to people who have given or representatives of people who have given large amounts of money. And I call it the deprofessionalization of the civil service. I wonder if you'd care to comment on, on that general aspect of disconnects. Foreign former yes. service officer. As an, yeah, as an ex-foreign service that. officer. You know, I was, I've been struck, I was struck by that even when I was at the State Department. That, um, and what's interesting is that political appointees wanting to go places that they never wanted to go before. You know, you have people who want to serve in Zambia out of the, you know, which was never the case. It was always, you know, the European capitals. Of course, everybody wants to go to London, Paris, and Rome. I, I would like that too, you know. Um, but it does create, I think, on the one hand, what's good about it is that those appointees, if they are good, have a direct uh, link back to Washington. And that does play a really important role, I think, in, in really pursuing the foreign policy agenda, that connection back. Because as you know, some of these political appointees, they can pick up the phone and call the White House and say, this is a problem that's not getting attention. Um, and so, the, but I think the challenge is, is to have good political appointees. Um, and, and that is really, I think it, it is, it can be undermining, right, when you have somebody out there who's just kind of doing what they see fit, particularly if you have people who are driven by ideology rather than willing to kind of follow the, you know, what it is, the, the, the foreign policy that we have of this country. So um, it is a challenge, and I think one of the bigger, also the bigger problems is that there isn't enough flow, actually, from people outside of the career bureaucracy into public service in our foreign 
affairs bureaucracy. Um, the foreign affairs bureaucracy lives in somewhat of a bubble, and having more flow between the two is, I think, it, uh, would be a very, very good thing. But figuring out exactly how to do that, I actually have my own ideas on how to do that, but I won't get into that here because <laughs> it's very bureaucratic. But um, it is an important aspect um, you know, as the world becomes so much smaller. Hello, and I'm a uh, graduate of Western Michigan University. Um, I do see, I agree with um, a lot of what you said, that there are a lot of opportunities actually for us to go into the right direction. But I do see two, at least two major challenges to our prosperity. Uh, the first one is the political system. Um, I think that in America, we know exactly what the right policies are because we have the resources, we've done the research, we have the knowledge, we have the people but we can't get the right policies through because of our political system. In the polit political system, in my opinion, the problem for it, it's gonna be hard to change it because of our education, the basic education. Our higher education might be um, in a good stage, but our basic education, I mean, this is, this, was, this is one of the reasons, for example, why Michigan had to go that far. Um, a lot of it, could have been avoided, but people basically were not educated enough to make the right choices when they want uh, when they went into the polling booth and they went uh, they voted against their own interest, in my opinion. But and I think that's a reflection what's happening in our country. And then the second challenge is a little bit historic and cultural, in my opinion. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that, as in. Um, I think we uh, first uh, the way uh, capitalism started out it was um, it was a different kind of capitalism but now I think it's gone kind of wild and uh, you know we're talking about like a lot of greed this is really not the kind of capitalism that we started out with so I think uh, um, the policies um, there is really a cultural challenge because if you want to start a new a good health policy the problem is uh, in America, we don't like handouts from the government. We don't like our government interfering with this and that. But we don't understand that it's necessary because the system we were built on, how we started out, we have to be flexible. We have to be open to changes. And I'm not sure whether we're there yet. So I think the cultural and historical background is going to be a big challenge. Can you elaborate on that? You can talk a little bit about that. Um, I mean, I'd say it's very encouraging that, on the, at least on the Democratic side, you know, everyone is talking about um, trying to change our, our health system, you know, substantially. So, you know, there's a little bit of, of movement there. Um, in terms of everybody sort of knowing what the right policies are, I, I would, I think that's, um, you know, I just look at the last seven years, and I actually think that a lot of people don't know what the right policies are, and it, you know, it really depends a lot on who we elect. I mean, the, you know, going into in, <laughs> invading Iraq turned out not to really be a good idea at all. And, and it's true there were a lot of people who were, you know, who suggested that that, that that was a bad idea. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the people who we elect uh, who, you know, who make these decisions for us. Uh, I think you're absolutely right about education. We talk a lot about that in the book, that we really need to, to invest in our own, you know, in our own people and our own ideas and our own, in our own workers. Um, I think another missing piece is, is, uh, is, voters voting on foreign policy issues, which they typically have not done at all, um, except when it comes to really crisis proportions like Iraq. Um, and, you know, we talk a little bit about, about that in the book. I, I'm optimistic in thinking that as the evidence of globalization affecting us becomes more and more and more clear, that um, people will, Americans will pay more and more attention and will begin to vote on these, on these issues, even when, you know, there aren't body bags coming home. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things that I just will add to, to 
pieces of that, which is, you know, our political system, I'm really encouraged, actually, by this election season thus far. Um, you know, people are paying attention. I think Americans really understand that we are at this turning point, both domestically, but they know, that obviously, that the world is changing. I, we've been struck, we've been talking to, you know, I was on the radio with rural voters in North Carolina and people in Florida, all over the country, right, Arizona this morning, people are aware of the fact that we are in a new world, and they actually are willing to put the dots together if our policymakers are willing to talk about what the trade-offs are and the challenges are. So I see that as a very, actually, encouraging sign. Um, and that can help overcome kind of the influence of money in that, um, you know, when people get together and actually vote, when, when people aren't voting and aren't exercising their, their, their choice, it means that money has a disproportionate influence on the system. But if you get that large percentage of Americans engaged, you know, I mean, money, is, of course, is still a factor, but it's much less of a factor. Um, and then in terms of the polling on workers, what I thought what we noticed, which was very interesting, is that, um, you know, Americans, it's true that they don't necessarily, nobody wants to be told that you're poor, right, and therefore you need a handout. That's not really that encouraging when you wake up in the morning, like, oh, you know, your life stinks and you need money. Um, people don't want to hear that. But um, people, what we noticed is that, Poll after poll shows that Americans desperately want their policymakers to focus on job creation, job retraining, new job programs, et cetera, et cetera. And interestingly, American policymakers do not see that as their job, right? And so there is a big disconnect there um, that we really think American policymakers need to wake up and, and deal with, right? So that's, that's all I'll say on that. Thank you. Is it on? Yeah. My name is Aud Kolberg from the Embassy of Norway. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about your suggestion on these uh, six pivotal powers coming together and look at the challenges uh, and how that relates to the present uh, international architecture and uh, international rule of law. Thank you. Patrick, can you tell us how we do this without creating yet another G8 summit? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure we can do that. Um, so, I mean, the, the ideal um, would be that if these powers were actually represented on the UN Security Council, but we all know that, that reforming um, the seats on the Council is, is extremely difficult um, and may not happen. Um, so our thought was to actually create a subgroup to the G8 or, or a tack-on to the G8 called the C6, the Core 6. Um, and our, our um, vision is that you'd have, you know, twice yearly meetings focused on a particular topic um, and that, you, you know, you don't, ha you don't create a whole other bureaucracy, um, it's, but you um, give a chance for these powers to get together and actually, you know, discuss some of the challenges that are, that are facing all of us. And actually, the big challenge with the C6 is if you look at any of these fora, you know, APEC, G8, they all started off as just a little forum to discuss and, you know, there's bureaucratic creep, right? It becomes this big staged thing and side meetings and all that. So the challenge is actually to keep it informal, right, is to keep it l not totally, um, you know, when you have people working. But they tried at APEC. And they tried at APEC, it, and it, now it, everybody's wearing, it, you know, weird uh, clothes and <laughs> doing dance. You know, it's APEC, <laughs> American leaders hate going to APEC because they inevitably have to wear some outfit that's become right. the trend. The host country gets to dictate what all the leaders wear, and inevitably you're wearing some whatever local. It's just, it's, it's. It's become <laughs> a problem. But I think, and the thing about APEC is that it's kind of lost its way in terms of an agenda, um, in part because I think, you know, 
it may be sometimes that there's not necessarily an agenda that all of those countries can agree on, and so it ends up being just a very bureaucratic, narrowly focused issue. And we think, you know, the C6 you're talking about, again, as we've said before, it's two-thirds of the global economy and it's half of the world's population. Um, getting together in a small room with more of the political leadership to see what's possible to strike the deal on climate change or strike the deal on what we're going to do on nonproliferation or Iran, that that's, that is ultimately what happens at the <coughs> end of the day. So let's just try to do it on a more regular basis. As somebody who used to write headlines once, I can see if this process goes, uh, goes awry, you could have a headline that says, Deep Six, the C6. C6, right. right. Yeah. Let's not write that. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be so lucky to get to that point. Right, exactly. Yeah. John. A quick observation, which is that you wear weird clothes in Saudi Arabia now, too. Um, but that's not my question. Uh, the, uh, I find the argument, I find the argument about how, uh, about the strategy for binding uh, China and India into the kind of global order compelling in the book. I mean, there, there are obviously uh, sub-questions like the Taiwan question and the buildup of the military in China that, that need to be fit into that framework. But uh, I've had this a little bit of this conversation with, with Nina in the past. I think the question about the trajectory on Russia is one that I think the book doesn't really quite come to grips with. Uh, I think if we're not playing a zero-sum game, they are. Uh, and they see, uh, first of all, I think that, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the structure of the government, the lack of, uh, uh, of both accountability and democracy there, I think, is a troubling development. But I think their, their relationship to the United States is one of, of zero sum with respect to power. And uh, it, wh whether it's energy policy, health care policy, et cetera, uh, with, the with the probably very important exception of control of nuclear materials, I don't see their agenda at all aligned with the United States on a global on the global stage, and I, I, I wish you to react to that. I'll talk a little okay. So um, I, I, think that, I think that Russia does present a challenge, um, but I think um, we have to remember that they're in this mentality of having lost the Cold War, and they're still in this mentality where they lost the Cold War, then they, then they went through a period where their economy basically imploded, and they're scraping back from that, and, and they're now saying, okay, we're back, and you better pay attention to us. I think some respect is what they're craving, and I think if we are to give respect but ask and exchange some responsibility, I'm slightly hopeful that we'll be able to get them, at least on some issues, to, to, play, to play along with us. It certainly doesn't help us to alienate them. Um, and, uh, and I think that the proliferation issue is not a minor one. It's huge. I mean, that, that's really front and central in American security. So it may only be one issue where we're very aligned, but it's a really important issue. And also, I mean, you know, it's interesting, the Russians, because on the one hand, it's true. I mean, this desire to get back their claim, reclaim their mantle. I mean, um, you know, they kind of watched. And if you, we did interviews with, with Russians, lots of policy thinkers, and the way they look at it is, you know, okay, you know, you had Poland and you had the Czech Republic and they, you know, stopped being communist and they were the darlings of America and America embraced them and then we end up, you know, deciding to not be communist anymore and, you know, you kind of let us in the door but then you did, you kind of stiff-armed us and then you kind of kicked us when we were down because you told us you weren't going to expand NATO but look, it's, it's expanded rapidly and we're talking about expanding it even more. 
And, you know, it would be as though the Russians were doing a security alignment with the Mexicans and the Canadians. I mean, you can imagine what that would do to our America's psyche, right? So I think, you know, you can't discount that aspect to it. And I agree with Nina, you know, at the end of the day, the Russians are, in fact, uh, probably more pragmatic than probably any of these other powers in many ways. Um, and part of it is to get back on to the horse that they want to be on, which is, you know, we're a major power. Um, and I think, you know, there are ways that you can engage them. And I, I think the rest of the world, if, if we get everybody else together and you go to them and you say, okay, we got the C6 organ, you know, kind of thing going, do you want to be a part of it or not? They're going to be a part of it, right? Because they see themselves as the second most powerful country in, in the world. Uh, granted, all the other pivotal powers see themselves as the second most <laughs> the most interesting. One of the interesting things about the book is that the Indians, the Chinese, not the Chinese actually, but the Indians and the Russians both see themselves as the second most powerful country after the United States, right? The Chinese actually don't really, and neither do the Japanese. So, you know, they really do want to reclaim their, their place in the world. And we, we have to understand that and leverage that. Would you say the Chinese strategy is we want to wait 20 years, let you guys fight it out, and then we want to be the second most powerful in the world? Everybody wants to be powerful, you know, right. it's just a question of how to get there, and that shouldn't threaten us. You know, as, we, as we've tried to say, we have these common agendas, and in, in a lot of ways, more powerful countries will help us with, those, with that agenda. Yeah. And also, it's, it's interesting, because they, you know, they, they want to be more powerful. And the other countries, you know, when you think about it, the, the Russians, the Japanese, the Indians, are at least as concerned about China's rise, if not more so than the United States, right? I mean, obviously, they've all had very complicated histories. And that creates, again, room for a very sophisticated American diplomacy to um, not hedge in this very clumsy way that we've seen, you know, with India, for example, where it's very in your face, but in ways that recognize those very complicated histories and tries to, um, you know, kind of take advantage of them in terms of our diplomacy. There were some other hands here in the back over there. Uh, uh, David Oxter, Research Institute for Independent Living. And the War College tells us that the goal of a military intervention is to achieve economic and political objectives. And we're putting a lot of money in the military, and those uh, economic and political objectives we're achieving, they're not that great. And uh, my question is, how does that play into the uh, domestic and the geopolitical uh, uh, arrangement? There's the question, was Clausewitz wrong or did we just read Clausewitz wrong? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean, I think that we, we continue to need a strong military, absolutely. Um, we need a different kind of military than the one we have. We don't need these, you know, I expensive weapon systems that are only good for fighting other, you know, big powers, which we are unlikely to do soon. Um, we, need, we need a more agile military that's more focused on, on the terrorist threat and instability and failed states. Um, but keeps in mind the idea that down the horizon we might end up in a conflict, uh, you know, with one of these big powers. Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges that we, we talked about is that you really want to create a military for a potential a range of different scenarios. You don't want to build a military to fight a war with China only to learn that, you know, you're fighting a war with somebody else way, way down the path. Or more importantly, that you may not ever have face a military clash with any of the major powers but you are engaged in intractable conflict over and over again, peacekeeping and else, you know, in various places around the world, dealing with failed states and places where they're you know, terrorists and the like. Mona, it's a completely why did, different Why military. did Rumsfeld fail? I mean, he laid out a very similar agenda, and he laid it out before 
Yeah, but the, the problem with Rumsfeld's agenda is that he assumed that the military didn't need people. It was all technology-driven, right, that you could, with technology, which is true, extend American power in a really uh, intensive way with relatively few people. And it turns out that the conflicts that we're in now, like the, you know, the Iraqs of the world and Afghanistans of the world, you need actually people on the ground. There is no sub substitute for you know, special forces. So the whole, I, we actually, I, you know, I actually believe that chances are we're gonna have to expand the, the number of soldiers in the military, more special forces, that kind of thing. While we look at the technology fixes and say, okay, well, let's be honest with ourselves. What kind of systems are we going to need? We might not need the classic kind of destroyers or whatever, but we might need other kinds of technology solutions. Ma'am. I'm Diane Perlman. I'm a social scientist studying cycles of violence and terrorism and specifically how to reduce them. And it seemed, you know, you talk about developing a strong military and people that love to hate us, and it seems like your, um, this is a partial paradigm shift, and I guess where it could be more is your focus is on the supply side of violence and sort of going after bad, you know, ways of <coughs> preventing um, acts of violence and, and conflict using violent uh, force. Um, is there anything in your program about using, there's a sound body of knowledge in nonviolent strategies of conflict transformation, tension reduction that deal with issues like um, humiliation, identity, sovereignty, fear, humiliation, just grievances, basic human needs, legitimate goals. And I think it's a lot cheaper and easier to reduce desire of people to take revenge on us and to reduce recruitment than going after. Is there anything in your program that addresses that? Absolutely. Um, we talk a lot about having to shift our national security spending to more non-military national security spending, and I think you hear a lot of the, can or the Democratic side anyway, a lot of candidates talking about that. We, we absolutely need um, a more vigorous um, diplomatic corps and more engaged and, you know, consulates and embassies that are open and not completely, you know, shuttered down. Um, and, uh, and I think, um, you know, with these powers on our side, we, we should be able to negotiate ends to a lot more conflicts as opposed to ourselves trying to use, you know, our, our hammer, which we have. And also, um, you know, in terms of the terrorist threat, I mean, one of the things we point out in the book is that this goes back to this question of the pivotal powers versus the threat that we do face. I mean, we don't understand China all that well, we don't understand India all that well, or even the Russians for that matter, but we really don't understand why people are intent on killing us. We like to think that we do. We like to convince ourselves, well, it's because they're poor. Oh, but it turns out maybe they're not so poor. Oh, it's because of this, it's because of that. Um, we need, you know, we do have a threat out there that we don't understand particularly well. And therefore, we have a tendency to, um, you know, hit it with a hammer in the hopes that that's going to deal with it, when in fact we, we probably will need to do a lot of that. But we also need to really understand why is it that people want to come and kill us in large numbers. Um, and, you know, after 9-11, I remember being, I wrote a chapter in a, in a book about why 9-11 happened, and we did a, a tour on that topic. And, audience after audience said, I didn't realize that people hated us so much, right, that they wanted to come and, you know, blow us up in, in numbers of the thousands. And I actually think we still don't really know the answer to that question. Um, and until we really do get an answer to that question, it's going to be very difficult for us to figure out exactly how to respond to the terrorist threat. So I agree with you. I mean, there's lots, lots to be done in a non-military way. 
Well, thank you very much. It's been a great discussion, and thank you all for wonderful questions, and I appreciate your coming. I think you're going to be doing book signing up here, and I think there are books back there. Thank you very much. Thank you.